We began an eight-week series last week called A Healthy Community of Love, and it's a series that will take us through the season of Lent, which begins on Ash Wednesday this week. And as you've already heard, the series that we're looking at on Sundays will be the source material for the Lenten Discipleship Institute. And so the hope is that many of us can have an opportunity to dig more deeply into the themes and passages that we're looking at in this series. And as a result of doing so, humbly and honestly, uh, that God will use it in our lives and as a community to grow us to greater degrees of health together as a church body. Uh, Last week, we saw in Galatians 2 uh, that the center of the new life that we've been invited into through the grace of God is the fact that you and I have been loved by Jesus, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20, that that is the foundation of any healthy community of love in the church. It is the foundation that we first are loved deeply beyond what we could imagine. Today, we're turning to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, this short segment of Jesus' teaching in his most well-known sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, that deals with the theme of judgment. And in doing so, we'll see a second foundation of a healthy Christian community, right judgment that is aimed first and foremost at ourselves. So as we consider Jesus's words, we will first clarify the disposition that Jesus is targeting and going after. And then we'll look at his two primary arguments against that disposition in verses one and two, and then in verses three through five. And again, in doing so, we will, we will see together that the proper or right judgment that is essential to being a healthy community is a judgment that is aimed not solely, but primarily and firstly, at least, at ourselves. So let's start then by trying to clarify Jesus's target. And let's just open and look at uh, verse one. Judge not that you be not judged. I'm sure that you've had that verse quoted at you at some point. And I think in in many ways, this rivals John 3.16 is the most quoted verse of the Bible. Um, And and I do want to say that for those who often quote this to Christians, There's a point that we need to listen to when they do so, right? We are not to be known to the world outside of the church as just a group of people who are blowing the whistle and putting on the sirens. Uh, We are to be known for our sacrificial self-giving love to the broader world for bearing up the cross of Jesus in our lives. Um, That said, there's a distinction between external and internal that we'll get into here, but... um, let me just say that when Jesus says judge not, and that's often you know, wielded as a way of saying, don't, you know, don't say what I'm doing is wrong. And I think if that comes from people outside the Christian church, then that's okay. In fact, it's not the first thing that we want to say to anybody, really. Um, but it's when it's used inside the church that I think it becomes problematic. This isn't saying, Jesus isn't going after a sense of that there shouldn't be any exhortation to, um, to make right judgments in the church. In other words, judge not is not to be used as a means of saying, look, we, we all should just live and let live, and that's kind of the end of the story in the church. And I, I want to illustrate that by looking in context immediately in this passage, but then kind of go to a few places in the broader New Testament context as well. Um, and let me do this, as I, as I say this, when we talk about judgment, there's a clear distinction between Jesus the judge, he is the ultimate king, who is our judge, in a way that none of us could ever be in one another's lives. And then the call to make healthy and right discernments and judgments in the body of Christ 
as, as, an, as an act and an, and an effort of love, which we are all called to. So there's a distinction. We'll pick this up more in a little bit. But why doesn't judge not mean, look, you can never make a judgment? Well, the first thing to say is that if, you, if we go to the second segment of this section in verses 3 through 5, Jesus doesn't actually ever say that we shouldn't take the speck out of our brother's eye. So here I'm just clarifying, what is Jesus attacking in this text? So Jesus doesn't ever say that we shouldn't take the speck out of our brother's eye. In fact, he says in verse 5, look, after you've taken the log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly enough, then you can remove the speck from your brother's eye. So this is something that can be done and is to be done in the body. In verse 6, Jesus, uh, in a a verse we're not going to dig into much, but he tells us not to give to the dogs what is holy and not to throw our pearls before pigs. And the implication is that the only way to obey Jesus in verse 6 is to discern who is able to receive the things of value that we have to share. In other words, it requires judgment or discernment to know who should I share these things with and who should I not. Um, And the the terms here in verse 6 are kind of harsh, you know, dogs and pigs, but the idea that Jesus underlying this is that we've got to make discernments and judgments. Third, in in the New Testament more broadly, we are explicitly called to make judgments in the church. 1 Corinthians 5 is the key text on this. Paul is upset. He's angry with the church in Corinth because they've permitted a man who's committing flagrant sexual immorality to stay as a part of their body, to remain in their midst. And Paul says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Don't judge those outside. That's God's job, Paul says. But those inside the church, you must make these discernments about. And then he quotes a refrain from Deuteronomy that's used seven times in the book of Deuteronomy. He he ends 1 Corinthians 5 with this refrain. He says, purge the evil person from among you. So there's this kind of judgment that goes on. Similarly, in Jesus's words to the church in Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, the exalted Jesus, now in his glory, is speaking to the church, and he says this to that church. He says, I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jesus is upset because they're tolerating someone in their midst that they should have exercised discernment about and judgment over and not allowed her to continue to do the things that she was doing that were hurting his bride. That's what he's upset about. In John 7, the literal translation of what Jesus says in verse 24 is to the the crowd in Jerusalem, judge by righteous judgment, he says, not by appearances. One more place, just consider the end of the book of James. The last two verses, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, how are you going to do that if you haven't discerned or made a judgment that your brother and sister that you are called to love has wandered off into a way of life that is detrimental to their life and detrimental to the church and detrimental to the glory of God, the God who loves them? You've got to make discernment, have discernment or make judgments. Those two words are contained in the one Greek word that's behind this, this word for judgment. So these, to judge not, cannot mean to those of us in the church, both us as an institution among our duly appointed leaders and as individual brothers and sisters in Christ, it cannot mean that we are not at times to partake in the the work of discerning and judging the conduct of others, particularly those in our midst. This requires wisdom, of course, and many of you are probably thinking right now, whoa, this could be way overdone and really unhealthy. And I would say absolutely right. 
there are communities in which this becomes the focus. And I think Jesus actually in verses 1 and 2 is pushing us away from this being the focus. Uh, that this can be completely abused and, and, and unhelpful. Uh, but, but that doesn't take away the reality that biblically this is an important part of a healthy Christian community. And I'll have more to say about that when we get to look more deeply at verses 3 through 5. So, so judge not does not mean that the church is not to make these kinds, and we as Christians are not to make these kinds of discernments and judgments. Now, let me make an important distinction at this point, that the kind of judgment and purging and correction that we are called to do is around matters that are clearly matters of sin. We are not to make these kinds of judgments of one another around disputable matters, that is, matters over which Christian consciences can be disagreed, that we can have liberty on, on various issues. So I'd point to Romans 14 as an example of this, where Paul's writing to these Christians who are wrestling over what is clean or unclean to eat. You remember this in this argument. And he says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And then a few verses later, he says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Well, which is it? Are we to pass judgment or not to pass judgment? And of course, this requires uh, real discernment again. Um, and we need to acknowledge that there are matters that we wrestle with in life that we are not to cast judgment upon one another for, but rather we are to work hard to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace in areas where we can legitimately disagree and have differences of opinion. And of course, I'm not answering this very difficult problem in the next two minutes. This is a challenging reality. It's not easy because one person's disputable matters are another person's clear sin. And that's the rub, right? That's the challenge. But just because that's a challenge doesn't mean we should back down from the biblical exhortations and Jesus' own exhortations about the importance of, of both of these things, of exercising good and godly judgment and discernment, and then also of recognizing when we're not to do that, in what matters we're not to do that, because before his own master, each person stands or falls. So that's just a distinction. So back to Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, rather than prohibiting the legitimate, necessary, and humble acts of judgment that are essential to health in the Christian body. Jesus has his sights set on a disposition that constantly looks down on the lives, actions, and hearts of others and sees them as lacking or as less than. He is attacking this underlying prevalent attitude of the heart that arises from a sense of self-righteousness from a sense of, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, to quote the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. An attitude that has no place among the disciples, his own disciples, and that is destructive to Christian community and destructive to our own souls as well. It's interesting when Jesus makes the same statement in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, he follows up, judge not, with, this, with these words, condemn not, and you will not be condemned. And there, there's a sense in which the, the judging is kind of, a, the extension of that is condemning. It's taking the place that only God can take in someone's life. Only God can know a person's true heart. And while we discern that as best we can, God knows that completely and, and, and perfectly like no one of us does. And it's this kind of judging with a more complete and final sense, resigning someone to a fate of not being okay, that Jesus is attacking He's not attacking healthy acts of judgment and discernment that the church is called to make. He's attacking this underlying attitude and disposition that is fueled 
by turning a blind eye to our own sin. Ignorance of self fuels arrogance toward others that manifests itself in a critical and judgmental spirit that is constantly seeing everyone else's faults but not seeing our own. So that's what he's attacking in this text, that disposition. So let's then think about these two, two ways that he attacks this directly. And then the first is in verse 2. So look with me at verse 2. He says, For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Which is to say, that is, as you tighten the screw on others, you are tightening it on yourself. Do you really want to do that? Jesus is saying. It's a threat and a warning that he's giving to his disciples here. To say, as you embody a critical and exacting spirit with people around you, well, guess what? That's, that's what's going to happen to you. The, the passive verbs in verse 2, that it will be, it will, uh, you will be judged and it will be measured to you. Most think that these are divine passives, that the, the subject of these verbs is God himself who will work in this way in the lives of those who take up this exacting and judgmental way with others around them. It's not dissimilar to the logic that Jesus uses when he teaches about forgiveness. Remember, there's a sense in which as we forgive, we pray this in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There is this sense in which God is saying, as we embody the forgiveness that he's given to us to others, so God then will also forgive us. But if we shut that down in the parable in Matthew 18 about forgiveness, we see that God will deal with us in an exacting way. And that's the same logic here. And so Jesus is attacking this disposition firstly by saying it's self-defeating. You don't want to do this to yourself. To attack others in this way is to lead yourself to being treated in a similar fashion by the God of heaven and earth. So that's his first argument against this kind of disposition. If you have any sense at all, he says, you'll stop doing that with, with others around you. Now, we might quickly respond to that argument that Jesus makes and say, well, then we, we should certainly just relax the call to holiness in the church because, look, I don't want to be caught up in that situation. And I, and I want to say that's actually not a good response to Jesus' teaching here. Any alliance with sin in our lives and in our community, by turning a blind eye toward it, whether it's in our own lives or in the lives of those that we love, is a violation of love toward God and love toward neighbor. So our response is not to sit loose on these matters. Rather, it is to undergird all discernment and judgment with a disposition of mercy and compassion and forgiveness. It is to make our judgments when necessary in the key, the musical key of mercy and compassion and forgiveness and gentleness. It is to put aside the harsh and critical and exacting spirit and to replace it with the spirit of the meek and lowly Jesus who came to seek and save the lost. Brothers, Paul says in Galatians 6, 1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Do you remember Paul's argument in Romans 2 as well? He says, don't you remember that the kindness of God leads to repentance? It's the kindness of God that is given to you to lead you to turn away from the self-defeating, life-crushing sin that we cling to so easily. And it's that that's meant to lead you out of that way into a way of genuine and full life. God is the opposite of harsh and exacting and scrupulous, always looking for where we mess up to point his finger at us. 
No, God has sent forth his son into the world, to a world that didn't deserve him, to a world that was rejecting him, in order that he might demonstrate his love and kindness toward us in a way that could never be surpassed. And it's his kindness that is called to lead us to repentance. So too, this is to be the mark of the body of Christ. As as we rightly discern uh, our brother or our sister in sin, the goal of that right discernment and judgment, according to Galatians, is restoration. And the path of that restoration is to be paved with gentleness as the body. To go back to verse 2, this is the measure that we are to use. This is the judgment that we are to practice. One infused with gentleness and mercy. And as we do so, Jesus says, this is in fact how God will treat us. So that's his first argument against this disposition of a critical and exacting and judgmental spirit among his people. The second argument, perhaps the more colorful of the two, and I think in many ways the part I really wanted us to focus on this morning, is Jesus exposes the folly of this kind of spirit of, self, of, a, of a self-righteous person who is judgmental. And if we get his point here, and we see the folly, and if we let it soak into the marrow of our bones, then I believe that we are well equipped together as a body to fight against sin as the people of God. To all of us exacting judgmental people, and I do think it exists in every single one of us, Jesus asks these questions in verses three and four. Look at them with me. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? In other words, Jesus is saying, take that scrupulous sense of judgment, take that exacting spirit, And turn it upon yourself. Let it apply to you firstly and primarily. How easy it is for us to see the sins of others in the light of day. To see how egregious they are. To be so indignant about them. And to be blind to our own. Many of you will remember in... King David's story that after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, he then killed her husband by sending her to the front lines of the battle, that God sent the prophet Nathan to go and speak to David. And you remember what he did when he went in to see David? He said, look, David, there was a rich man and a poor man, and the poor man just had one little lamb. And the rich man had somebody to come visit him, and so instead of taking from his own wealth, he, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for those who had come. And do you remember David's response to that little parable? David was indignant with righteous anger. He said, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. Because he had no pity. David could see with piercing clarity the sin of his brother. But he was so blind to the log in his own eye. And then the prophet Nathan says in words that I believe we should play over and over again in our heads. Anytime that we are upset with the sins of our brothers or sisters in the Christian community, you are the man. David, it's you I'm talking about. You couldn't see it because you were blind in your own self-righteousness about you couldn't just confront the reality of your sin. But David, you are the man. And I think when we think about the sins of our brothers and sisters, when we think about having proper and right judgment in the Christian community, that we can only do so as the man who is under the finger of God's righteous judgment. 
for our misdeeds and wrongdoings. This is a pervasive problem. Augustine actually writes about a pirate who was captured and brought before Alexander the Great. And the pirate asked why he was styled a pirate for doing to ships what Alexander was doing to countries. And despite this, Alexander was styled a great emperor. The inconsistencies were not lost on this pirate. We can see in others what we are so blind to seeing in ourselves. We, are, we can be exacting with others and so permissive on ourselves. And what does Jesus say about this? He uses a word that we saw in Galatians 2 last week. Strong words. He says in verse 5, you hypocrite. Last week we saw that that meant somebody who wears a mask. Somebody who's acting out a script as a play actor that's not really the truth. And in this case, you're focused on your brother's sin while having a log in your own eye, on the speck that's in your brother's eye. Well, you aren't even paying any attention to the log that's in your own eye. That's acting out something that's untrue, that's false. That's hypocritical, that's play acting. It, it's not in line with reality. You're like someone whose femoral artery has been severed and you've got blood pouring out of your body and you come upon a little girl who scuffed her elbow and you say, can I help you put on your Band-Aid? It just doesn't, it's not, it's not what's real. It's the height of folly. Now for a more comical and grotesque example from the 1975 movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail, uh, King Arthur gets into a fight with the Black Knight and uh, he cuts off the Black Knight's arm and the Black Knight responds, tis just a scratch. The fight continues and Arthur cuts off his other arm the Black Knight wants to continue to fight. Arthur says, look, you've got no arms left. And the Black Knight replies, it's just a flesh wound. And on the fight goes until the Black Knight has no limbs left. That is an example of a blindness that we have to our own condition. It's what we can all be like in relation to our sin. We can see that you've lost a limb, that there, there's a gaping wound in, in your life. But when we look at ourselves, ah, it's just a scratch. It's just a flesh wound. But that isn't true. It isn't true. And to operate out of that diminished view of our own sin, to go around trying to clean up everybody else without a clear understanding of our solidarity with every single other person in sin is what Jesus says is to be a hypocrite. It is to deny the reality about our own heart and soul. You know, last week we saw that the most important thing, most important truth about us is that we are deeply loved by God. He loved us and gave himself for us. Jesus loves you. And that is the foundation of the Christian life. But this week we need to see with utter clarity that the you and the me that Jesus loves so deeply are sinners who have had logs in our own eyes removed and who may still have logs in our eyes that need to be removed. We do have a hard time seeing this. We come up with rationalizations or justifications or excuses about the logs in our own eyes. There are reasons why I'm like this that I can't help 
my family of origin made me this way, that other person really pushed my buttons and so on. And it's not to suggest that these other reasons aren't meaningful and shouldn't be explored. Absolutely they should. But how easily we can use these things to reduce our awareness of and admission of the logs in our own eyes or the specks even, or the things that are even less, and then to go around trying to make right judgments about others. It just isn't right. You see what Jesus says in verse five after he says, you hypocrite? He says, first take, out the, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The reality is, is in a healthy community, this can only happen when we've rightly judged ourselves, when we've noticed the log. And here's the beauty and power of the Christian gospel. I know that, that these are challenging words, but the reality is, is when we know so deeply that we are loved, when we look at the cross and we realize that wasn't just some kind of impersonal cosmic act, but Jesus was there for me and for you. When we recognize that the love of God could be expressed in no greater way for us as enemies of the cross, as those who were running in our own direction, then and only then, and uniquely among all the peoples of the world, can we actually say with, with clarity and without flinching, oh, I am a sinner. It's the radiance of the love of God that empowers us to be honest about the depth of sin in our own heart. And I want to say this, that you know, as I talk to older brothers and sisters, to more mature Christians who are further along the path and closer to glory, that continually the mature ones that I know and love and respect tell me again and again, I am so much more aware of my sin today than I ever was when I was your age. They've grown in maturity, but they've also grown in the security of the deep love of Christ for them that enables them then to see with greater precision and clarity the depth of the logs in their own eyes. And there's this beautiful paradox, paradox in the Christian life that as we mature in the love of God, so we become more capable of seeing the depth of the darkness of our own soul. And not just a darkness that was in the past, but a darkness that we continue to wrestle with in the present day. There can be logs aplenty that keep coming and they come and they come. And thanks be to God that he loves us and enables us to see this plainly. William Carey was that pro prodigious English missionary to India, Christian missionary, at the end of the 18th century and beginning of the 19th century. And he's often called the father of modern missions. And some of you will, will know what was written on his tomb, the epitaph. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul, as he's ar arguing that he's not inferior to these false apostles that have infiltrated the church in Corinth. He, he has this little seemingly throwaway line where he says, even though I am nothing. We read from Isaiah 6, when the prophet gets a glimpse of the holiness of the majesty and the wonder of the God of all creation on his throne and the seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy. His response can only be, woe to me. Woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. There is no room for any other judgment upon myself before this God of holy glory than that I am a sinner. I'm a deep sinner. Now, of course, that needs to be balanced with the sense that we are all made and fashioned in the image of God. We bear his image upon us, and that is why he sent his son into the world to rescue and redeem us. And so we hold those two things in tension, but we must always embrace this reality that we do not 
deserve his great love? Do we see the log in our own eye? Do we understand that we are great sinners? And yes, as Newton said, we have a great savior. And that enables us to say just how much more that we are, in fact, a great sinner. This kind of judgment, right judgment, that is centered upon ourselves, does mean then that even as the log is removed from our eye and we go to address the speck in our brother's eye, that we can never do so, ever, from a place that is above. Perhaps I might even say we should never do so with one another, even from a place that's alongside. But we should always do so from a place that is below, with an awareness that I am a sinner who has received the saving love of God in Christ. And it is this posture this foundational truth that enables the kind of reality for us to be able to go to our brother and sinner, brother and sister, and, and, and not be condemning, but to be gentle, to be meek, to be humble, to be lowly, to be longing for his or her restoration, to say, come along with me. I want to invite you from this place. And if you resist and if you push back and if you won't listen, I love you anyway. Come. However egregious we may think our brother or sister's sins are because we know that our sins are just as great, if not in fact greater. We also know that the log can come back. You remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We remain in a posture of humility and of dependence before a God of glory and holiness whose love for us could never be intensified than what it has been shown to us to be, what it is already. And we stand there with tremendous clarity before his amazing love, clarity about our own sin, but clarity about his love as well. Paul says in Galatians 6, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We must know that we are nothing. Healthy Christian communities comprise and are sustained by people who know the logs that have been removed from their own eyes. And by people who know that in spite of those logs that have been removed, they are deeply loved by Jesus. These are the right judgments at the foundation of Christian community. Judgments about Christ's love, and judgments about our own sin that undergird the whole work and that then also enable us to see clearly and do the speck-removing work in our brother's eyes that is at times necessary as a part of being a healthy Christian family as well. Let me make a few final points as I close, just with some points of application. As those who understand the attack that Jesus is making here against the self-righteous, judgmental attitude as those who understand and see very clearly the log in our own eye, who have a log in our own eye disposition. Let me offer a few things about how this could be applied. It means that we will be suspicious of our own opinions and perspectives because we recognize there could be things, there could be specks, there could be large specks, there could be logs in our own eyes that keep us from seeing rightly. 
We would generally say what we think and see. We're called to do that as honest brothers and sisters, but we would always do so with the expression, but I might be wrong. Because we could be. I knew a woman in a prominent Christian ministry years ago who jokingly described herself as sometimes wrong, never in doubt. And she was aware of that in her life and she was working on it. And I think that's something that we could all work on as well in light of what Jesus teaches us here. A second point is that to say that because of the reality of our own logs and specks is that we, we are wise to disperse our discernment of the will of God to a wider body of people, not just to those that already affirm everything that we think. King Ahab of Israel loses his life in 1 Kings 22 because he only listens to the prophets who tell him what he wants to hear. And the one prophet of the Lord who speaks to him the truth tells him that he'll lose his life, but he goes anyway. And I wonder sometimes, will we rather have our prior opinions ratified because there are opinions and suffer the consequences, or would we rather discern the will of God even if it means that we don't get our way? Because in walking in the will of God, we will experience life and fruit. Third thing to say is the log in our own eye attitude means that we will cultivate a posture that's eager to receive the rebukes and corrections of others. Most of us don't think about ourselves being the brother with the speck that somebody's coming to. But I wonder, could we be? It seems to be a fair implication of the text. Proverbs 9, 8, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. When someone challenges you and critiques you and calls you out in sin, do you fight and push back or do you say, thank you? Knowing that because you're loved so deeply by Jesus that you have nothing to fear. Finally, will we be the friend that loves by pointing out the specks in our brother's or sister's eyes? And I recognize we gotta be really careful with this one because it can hurt people. I think if we keep the teaching of Jesus in mind here that we'll, we'll prevent ourselves from, from hurting. And of course, an overuse of this can lead to a community that no one wants to be a part of. But I think we would all be honest and say that it's more or less rare and often mostly absent in the church. And it's a dimension of love that we're missing out on from one another. You know, actually somebody did this with me recently, gently and graciously. And after he did it, I, I was struck by two things. One, by how helpful it was. And secondly, by how rare it is. Brothers and sisters, we are in fact called to remove the speck from, our, from one another's eyes. But we can only do so as those who know the logs that have been removed from our own. This is a great gift that we can give to one another in a healthy church together. Bonhoeffer said, nothing can be more cruel than tenderness that consigns another to his sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. And he's probably just quoting the proverb which says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I realize these are sensitive matters at the heart of all of this, what I really want you to remember is that right judgment 
is a judgment that is focused upon myself. And there's such liberty to do that because of the love of Jesus for each one of us. And then out of that humility, out of that foundation that I am a sinner saved by grace, we can walk into beautiful relationships of love that spur one another on to greater and greater degrees of God-glorifying holiness in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help in doing so. We pray that you would be in your kindness that you would reveal to us perhaps where we have a critical and judgmental spirit that Jesus is attacking here, where we have perhaps been blind to the logs in our own eyes. And Lord, I pray that by your grace and favor that we would, in the liberty of your love, that we would be so freed to acknowledge that we are sinners saved by a great Savior and that we would love each other from that place and no other. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.